Sue and I slipped into the city a couple of weeks ago. We do this every year. We spend a couple of days downtown in Chicago. We just like to take in all the, you know, the Christmas lights and decorations. And so the first day, we're out on Michigan Avenue. We're doing some shopping, and we're walking down the sidewalk, and we're noticing rather ominously that police are gathering at every street corner, groups of police. And we're wondering, what in the world's going on? And then, then we heard the shouting. We heard shouting and we looked up and coming down Michigan Avenue toward us was this parade of protesters and they were chanting together 16 shots and a cover-up. 16 shots and a cover-up. You could just feel the hostility, the tension in the air. Now interestingly, the next morning, we're still downtown and we're having an omelet at our favorite Chicago breakfast place and we're talking about the previous day and this animosity that, that, that we felt. And suddenly I realized I'm listening with one ear to the Christmas carols on the PA system of the restaurant in the background and I stopped Sue and I said, wait, wait, babe, you got to hear this. And this is the carol that was being played. You could feel free to hum along. City sidewalks. That's where we were, city sidewalks, busy sidewalks, dressed in holiday style. In the air, there's a feeling of Christmas. Children laughing, people passing, meeting smile after smile, and on every street corner, you'll hear silver bells, silver bells. It's Christmas time in the city, ring-a-ling, hear them sing, soon it will be Christmas Day. And we looked at each other and we said, that's not what we were hearing on street corners yesterday in downtown Chicago. We weren't hearing silver bells ring-a-linging. That, that, that song paints a picture of a Christmas that is peaceful and tranquil, but quite frankly, friends, peace is sometimes conspicuously absent from the holidays. I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes about peace. I want to talk to you about personal peace. I want to talk to you about what might be threatening peace in your Christmas celebration this year. You know, your, your peace buster may be layoffs at work. Your peace buster may, may be an unidentified lump in your breast. It may be a conflict you're having with your mom and your dad. It may be a bad habit that you you feel is becoming an addiction, somewhat worrisome to you. It may be a sense of distance from God. What is chasing away your peace this Christmas season? 700 years before Jesus came to the planet, a prophet by the name of Isaiah predicted that God would send the world a Savior, a, a Messiah, and one of the names, the titles by which the Savior would go, this is Isaiah 9 verse 6, is Prince of Peace, Prince of Peace. And when Jesus is finally born in Bethlehem, God sends an angel choir to split the sky and sing out a song announcing this good news to a group of shepherds on a hillside. These are the lyrics of the angel's song, Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace, peace to those on whom his favor rests. See, Jesus came to bring peace. Now, what, what does that peace look like? I would like to describe to you from the Bible, from God's holy word, three kinds of peace. And as I do, I want you to ask yourself the question, how many of these kinds of peace am I experiencing? Okay, so here's number one, peace in relation to God. Peace in relation to God. I recited to you a moment ago the lyrics of the angel's song, 
as they announced Jesus' birth. Let me go back to the beginning of the story. This is Luke chapter 2. You heard it wrapped earlier in the service. It says, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Now, it begins with the reference to Caesar Augustus. He's the Roman emperor at the time. He's the most powerful man in the world. And he issues a decree. Everybody needs to go to their hometown to register. Let me give you, give you a little background on Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is not actually the dude's name. It's his title. His name is Octavian. Octavian was the great nephew of the, the famous Julius Caesar. In fact, when Octavian became 20 years old, Julius Caesar officially adopted him as his own son. His star was rising. He was gaining more and more power. And eventually, this power-hungry young man took over the throne of the empire, defeating Antony and Cleopatra to get it. And the minute he became emperor, he announced he had a new title. His title is Caesar Augustus. Now, Augustus is a Latin word. It means revered one, holy, holy one. What's interesting is that, is that up to this point in time, this title had been used exclusively for the gods. So Octavian takes on a title, God. In fact, he likes, when his entourage comes down the street, he likes to be hailed as Savior. That's what people begin to call out, Savior, Savior. Now, Octavian changes New Year's Day. It's no longer the first day of the year. It's now on his birthday, September 23rd. He, he declares peace throughout the realm. Pax Augustus, he calls it. In fact, he erects a monument in downtown Rome to celebrate the peace that he's brought to the empire. But historians tell us it was a dark peace. It was a peace that had been achieved by bludgeoning everybody into submission. One historian says it was a Hitler kind of peace. Pax Augustus. You know, the fact of the matter was... Caesar Augustus himself, Octavian didn't have peace. He didn't have the peace that we're talking about right now, peace in relation to God. Because it's impossible to have peace with God. Listen, it's impossible to have peace with God while setting yourself up as a rival to the one true God. And to be perfectly honest with you, friends, there's a little bit of Caesar Augustus in every one of us. I mean, we, we want to be our own God. Now, we would, we would never say it like that, but we live like that. We live as if we should have the, the final say about everything we do. We should have the final say about our priorities, our values. We should have the final say about what's right, what's wrong, about the dreams we're going to pursue. See, each of us prefers to decide all these things for ourselves. We are not interested in getting our directives from God. And so, in a sense, we've become our own little gods. Miley Cyrus said something in the news recently that shocked me, which uh, I was surprised. I didn't think Miley could say anything that would shock me anymore. 
But she was talking about how difficult it was for her mom to adjust to her wild lifestyle, to her sexual promiscuity. Uh, but, but, but she noted, she said, my mom gets it now. My mom's cool with it. And this is Miley's quote that left me scratching my head. She said, my, my mom didn't want me to be judged. She didn't want me going to hell. But she believes in me more than she believes in any God. I just asked her to accept me, and she has. I read that a couple of times. So Miley's mom now accepts Miley's lifestyle because she believes in Miley and Miley's choices more than she believes in any God. That sounds awfully Caesar Augustish to me. You know, we're living in a culture, friends, where we get to be our own gods. We get to have the final say about our lives. And listen to me, that sort of a perspective drives a huge wedge between the one true living God and us. The Apostle Paul wrote a New Testament letter to a group of people who previously took this approach to life. Colossians chapter 1 verse 21, listen to this. He says, once you were alienated from God, you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Now, that's strong language. Nobody likes to think that they're alienated from God, that they're they're enemies. What what do you mean that God and I are enemies? I have nothing but warm regard in my heart for God. I mean, we we may not always be best buds, but we got this sort of relationship. That may be our perspective, but according to the Bible, it's not God's perspective. See, when we go our way instead of God's way, something we do countless times in the course of every day, in little ways and big ways, we're behaving like rebels. And the Bible says that the penalty for our rebellion, because God is the giver of life, the penalty for rebellion against God is death. It's spiritual, physical, eternal death, which is why Jesus came to earth that first Christmas. See, Jesus came to die in our place. Jesus came to pay our penalty for disconnecting from God, the giver of life. And after Paul tells us in Colossians 1 verse 21 that that we're alienated from God, that we're actually enemies with God, he goes on in the very next verse, verse 22, and he says, but now, now God has reconciled you. God's made peace with you by Christ's physical body through death. Jesus had to die to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. I hope you're following this. Let let me sum up what I've said so far. We have this tendency to behave like little gods. We go our way instead of God's way. This doesn't mean you you need to be an axe murderer or an adulterer or a a cheat. It just just means God says this and you decide, I think I'll do that. The Bible calls this sin, and it says that sin alienates us from God, the giver of life. And this disconnection results in our deserving death. But Jesus came to earth. He died the death we deserve to die on the cross. And so now Jesus and Jesus alone is able to reconcile us with God. In another one of his New Testament letters, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says says it this way. He says, when you surrender your life to Jesus... He gives you peace with God. Do you have peace with God? You say, well, of course I do. Maybe you do. 
You say, why would I not? If you've never surrendered your life to Christ according to the Bible, he's the only one, the Prince of Peace, who can make peace between you and God. Here's a second kind of peace that the Bible talks about. Peace in relation to others. I don't know if you're a Cubs fan, but you should be if you're not. I say you should be because all the sports analysts are saying these days that the Cubs will be the hottest contender for the World Series title this next year. And they're, they're saying that because of some of the strategic off-season trades that the Cubs have been making. So one of those trades has been for a guy named Jason Hayward. Now, Jason, until recently, he was the enemy Okay, the dude wore cardinal red. He played for that obnoxious team from St. Louis that we had to decisively eliminate from the playoffs a couple of months ago. All right? So, but he's on our team now. He's a good guy. He's wearing cubby blue. He's going to play in the friendly confines of Wrigley Field. He's going to chase lofty fly balls back to the ivy-covered walls. We like Jason now. Now, this is an analogy, okay, this is only an analogy for you St. Louis fans whom I've honked off now, all right? Here's the analogy. Back in the first century, decent people looked at shepherds like Cubs fans today look at St. Louis Cardinals. Shepherds were despised. (laughs) Shepherds were despised. In fact, according to the Mishnah, which is an ancient document. It's a commentary on Jewish laws. Shepherds were under a ban. You were to keep your distance from shepherds. They they were not to be in good company because they were seen to be grubby thieves. In fact, the only people lower on the social scale than shepherds were lepers. But then God, God made them part of his team. You know, that first Christmas... The night that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, who was the first group of people to whom God made the announcement by angel choir that my son has come to earth? It was a group of shepherds on a lonely hillside outside Bethlehem. Now, I read to you part of the story, but I stopped at verse 7. Let me pick it up in Luke 2, verse 8. It says, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. Yeah, out in the fields, keep them out of town, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, he's the Messiah, the Lord. And then the angels broke out into this hallelujah chorus. Now listen, friends, there was something very, very intentional about God announcing the birth of his son initially and gloriously to shepherds. God was making a a statement. The the statement was that, that his son was arriving on the planet not only to bring the possibility of peace with God, but to make possible peace with other people, people we don't like, shepherds, St. Louis Cardinals, whatever. Seriously, the Apostle Paul wrote about this 
peace with others that Jesus brings in another one of his New Testament letters, the letter of Ephesians. And Paul knew about this kind of peace firsthand because before Paul had been a Christ follower, he'd been a very, very devout Jew. And back in the day, devout Jews hated Gentiles and Gentiles hated Jews until Jesus dismantled that hostility. So listen to what Paul writes about Jesus in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, Jesus himself is our peace. He's our peace who has made two groups one. That's Jews and Gentiles. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making, say it with me, peace. Thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Now, please follow closely what Paul's saying here. He's saying that when people get peace with God by surrendering their lives to Jesus who died on the cross for their sins, then they start experiencing true peace with other people. So let me explain this connection to you, okay? Why there's such a strong connection between having peace with God and peace with other people? Two reasons. First of all, I've already said that in order to get peace with God, you have to acknowledge that that you're a sinner, that you've chosen to go your way instead of God's way, and that's caused a disconnection with the giver of life so that you deserve death. Jesus had to die for you. And here's what happens. When, When you reach that place where you're willing to acknowledge that, it changes the way you look at other people. See, You see, the minute you get in touch with your own sinfulness... The more gracious, the more peacefully you're able to deal with the sinfulness of other people who irritate you, who annoy you, who abuse you, who make life difficult for you. You know, you you, you begin to say, but I'm a sinner just like them. Yeah, yeah, they're, you know, they're dishonest, they're harsh, they're self-centered, they're uh, over-demanding, and then, and then you, you look in the mirror and you say, and I'm dishonest and harsh and over-demanding and self-centered. I'm a sinner just like them. See, this, this is the first step in peace with God, and it lends itself to peace with others. The second reason, also coming out of peace with God, is that when you begin to understand that, that Jesus loves you enough to leave the glory of heaven, to come to earth, to give his life on the cross, to die for you, you begin to wake up to the realization that if he loves me like this, he must love other people like this, even people who I don't have peace with. And it's helpful, I've found, it's helpful to even remind myself of that out loud, that Jesus loves these people. I do this especially when I'm driving. (laughs) Yeah, Somebody cuts me off in traffic without even using a turn signal. I'll tell you, my knee-jerk reaction is, is to say, that guy's an idiot, or worse. But here's what I'm trying to train myself to do, and I mean this right out loud, to say that guy is loved by Jesus who came to give his life for him on the cross. I make myself say it. Yes, it works. You got to say it. You got to say it out loud. Jesus loves and died for your conniving ex-spouse. Whoa. Jesus loves and he died for your cranky boss. 
Jesus loves and died for, hear me Republicans, Barack Obama. Okay, hear me Democrats, Donald Trump. <laughs> Pick your poison, is that? He, he, he loves, he died for that friend who monopolizes conversations. He, he leaves you walking away saying, eh, they didn't ask one question about me. But Jesus loves them, died for them. Jesus loves and died for the salesperson who sold you a lemon. He loves and died for the kid who bullies your child on the school playground. He does. The more we get to know the Prince of Peace and what he's done for us, the more we'll extend his peace to others. Now, there's a third category of peace I want to mention, and that, that is peace in relation to life's circumstances. I want to go back to the Luke 2 Christmas story. Earlier in the sermon, I read quickly about the, the trip that Joseph and Mary took from Nazareth to Bethlehem. But even though there are only a few verses that describe it, you've got to know this was an arduous journey in the first century. I mean, for starters, it was a distance of 85 miles, and it had to be traveled on foot. No car, no train, no bus on foot. And let me remind you, Mary was very, very pregnant at the time. Maybe, maybe Joseph was able to borrow a donkey for, uh, for Mary. The scripture doesn't say, even though pictures today, you know, we see her sitting on a donkey. And I'm not, I'm not sure if that's a great idea for a pregnant lady over 85 miles. Okay. I remember years ago, my family and I, we hiked to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, stayed overnight, hiked back out the next day. And there were two ways to get to the bottom. You either hiked by foot or you took a donkey down. And I remember two hours into the hike thinking we should have taken the donkey. And then I saw people on the donkeys, the pain in their faces. And I said, I'm glad we walked. <laughs> so, I, you know, I don't know how they got there. It must have been painful for Mary. And then they get there. And what, what are the circumstances there? You know, according to Scripture, Luke 2, verse 7, there was no guest room available for them. Guest room is a very euphemistic term. It's putting a positive light in Luke chapter 2 on, on what really was the case back in the first century. Historians tell us that the typical inn was nothing but a group of stalls and a roof over them. The stalls weren't for your animals. They were for you. You stepped into the stall and you unrolled your, your, your blanket and that was it. And if you had an animal, it was kept out in a common area where it could graze. And if you were lucky, the innkeeper might provide a general fire for anybody who wanted to cook over it. That was it. That's all Mary and Joseph got. Whoa, wait a second. They didn't even get that, right? Didn't even get that. So what would motivate them to go from... Nazareth to Bethlehem. Well, only the fact that some egomaniac named Caesar Augustus had decreed that everybody had to go to their hometown. That's the only thing that could have moved them from Nazareth to Bethlehem. I was reading one Bible scholar on this score this past week, and he said Joseph probably wept as much as Mary did, seeing her pain the stinking barnyard, their poverty, people's indifference, the humiliation, the sense of utter helplessness, feeling shame at not being able to provide for young Mary on the night of her travail, all that would make a man either curse or cry. I read that and I thought, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if Joseph had cried. But, but I'll bet he also recalled his visit from that angel 
who had explained to him that the child who'd been conceived had been conceived by God and was destined to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So I'm guessing that Joseph believed that God was up to something even in the middle of his desperate circumstances. And the fact is, God was up to something. The fact is, now get this, the fact is, the idea to move people to their hometowns wasn't Caesar Augustus' idea to begin with. It was God's idea. He put it in Caesar Augustus' head. You say, why would God do that? Again, some backstory here. 700 years earlier, another prophet by the name of Micah, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, predicted that God would send the world a Savior and the Savior would be born in the town of Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Because Bethlehem was the hometown of King David, Israel's most famous king. And all the prophecies pointed to the, the day when God would send a savior who would be the ultimate king and reign forever and ever. So where else would he be born but Bethlehem? So God needed to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. And he puts this idea into Caesar Augustus' head, which leads to very difficult circumstances for Mary and Joseph. Listen, friends. God uses even the terrible circumstances of our lives to accomplish grand purposes for us and through us. And that realization is what will give us peace when life hits the fan. You know, the Apostle Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, two of my favorite verses in the Bible. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace, listen, the peace of God, that's our third kind of peace, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, I think the key phrase in those two verses is with thanksgiving. See, when we pray with thanksgiving, not wringing our hands, but when we pray with thanksgiving, God guarantees peace. And I know some of you are thinking, well, what in the world is there, there to be thankful for when, when life's situation stinks, when it's painful? As it is for some of you right now, or it's out of control, or it's horribly depressing, what is there to be thankful for? That God is in control? That God is working everything out with our best interests in mind, even though we don't see it right now? That God will even toss random blessings into the midst of those trying circumstances? See, if, if, if we believe that, if we believe that God, and not some Caesar Augustus type, is guiding the affairs of our lives, just like he was with Mary and Joseph, then our hearts and our, our minds will be guarded by God's peace. Friends, that means peace in the middle of job loss. It means peace in the middle of cancer. It means peace in the middle of a spouse's unfaithfulness. Peace in the middle of unpaid bills or a broken engagement. Or peace just when you've had a bad day where nothing's gone according to plan. I got, I got to tell you what happened to me as I was finishing up this sermon. I'm just at this point in my notes. And it was the end of the day, and so I closed my laptop because my wife had gone online, and she had snagged us some tickets for that uh, huge light show that they do at Morton Arboretum, the illumination. And so we paid a lot of money, non-refundable tickets, and we were going to go, six adults, 
a very excited two-year-old and a baby, two cars. And so we get on Route 88, and we're making our way to Morton Arboretum, and halfway there, all the power in my car goes whoosh, just blacks out. And so we're able to get the car off the side of the road, down a ramp, and into a parking lot next to a darkened office building, and we call for a tow truck. Now, I won't bore you with all the details, uh, you know, tell you about the missed light show we never got to, or the tow truck that took an hour to get there, or the extremely expensive bill to fix my car. I won't tell you about all that. <laughs> but when I came home and opened my laptop to finish my sermon, this is where I was. Peace in life circumstances. Bah humbug. Don't you hate it when you, 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 you got to take your own medicine? <laughs> so I did. And I said, thank you, God. Thank you that you're still in control. Thank you that this is a blessed Christmas season when you sent your son. Thank you for my family with whom I almost got to see the lights. <laughs> thank you for my car that works most of the time. And mostly, God, thank you for giving me a sermon illustration with which to close my Christmas Eve <laughs> sermon. Gosh. Do you have peace? Okay, do you have peace with God? Don't say, I think so. No, so. It's critically important. Your eternal destiny is at stake. If you don't know for certain, surrender your life to Christ today. That's the only way peace with God comes. Don't think because you have a fond view of God that you're at peace with God. From his perspective, you may still be an enemy because of your behavior, acting like your own little God. And I'll tell you how to surrender to Christ in just a moment. We'll close with that before we sing Silent Night, Holy Night. Do you have peace with others? Maybe there's someone you're going to see in the next 24 hours you don't have peace with. And I, I would say it's time to remind yourself that you're a sinner just like them and that Jesus loves them and died for them just like he did for you. Do you have peace in life circumstances? Is there something going on in your life right now where you've got to figure out something to thank God for? Most basically, that he's in control of it and has your best interests at heart like he did for Mary and Joseph. Now, I said we come back to a prayer, surrendering our lives to Christ. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me right now across four campuses. Would you just bow before Almighty God? And I want to invite you to surrender your life to Christ. This is the only way to get peace with God, genuine peace with God. And so if you're inclined to pray this prayer with me, I'm going to give it to you one line at a time. If this prayer resonates with your heart, then you just pray it from your heart. Dear God, I want peace with you. I recognize that my sins have alienated me from you. I've been crowding you out of my life, pretending to be my own God. I want to turn from my sins and put my hope in Jesus, the Prince of Peace. I acknowledge that when Jesus died on the cross, he died in my place, taking the death my sins deserve. Amen. 
And right now, I invite him to become my Savior and King. I get off the throne of my life, and I put Jesus on the throne. And I mean this from my heart. Now I want you to do one more thing while your head's bowed. You're talking to God now. Here's what I want to ask you to do. Sometimes when you do something internally like that, you make a spiritual decision. It's helpful to do something physical that says, yep, that's what I did. So in just a minute, here's what I'm I'm going to ask you to do across four campuses. If you just prayed that prayer of surrender, you said, God, I want peace with you. I'm surrendering to Christ. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet for one second and sit back down. That's how we're going to close the prayer across four campuses. A couple of good reasons to do this. Reason number one, it signals to God that you're sincere, that you really mean it. You want peace with him. You're really surrendering to Christ. And secondly, it helps you remember this commitment that you're making. Tomorrow when you get up, you don't want to wonder, did I make it or didn't I? You want to say, no, I stood up. I said, yes, I've surrendered to Christ. I want peace with God. Okay, so now's your moment to do that. Just take 30 seconds if you want to stand up for one second and sit back down. Okay. All across the auditorium. All right. Up in the balcony. All right. Just stand up and sit back down. All right. At other campuses, if you're in Bartlett or Blackberry Creek or DeKalb, you're watching this, just stand to your feet for one second and sit back down. All right. God, I just want to close in prayer saying thank you. You are the Prince of Peace. We wouldn't know peace with you out of which every other kind of peace in our life flows. I mean, if we don't get it right with you, we've got no peace. So thank you for those who are making that decision and saying, yes, this is what I want for my life, Christmas 2015. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.